officially running for President of the United States. You know I've got to talk about Trump. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. I would build a great wall, and nobody builds walls better than me, believe me. The American dream is dead. I will bring it back, and we will make America great again. Thanks for downloading this episode of Pod Academy. I'm Alex Bird. Business magnate and reality TV star Donald J. Trump announced his intention to run for the Republican presidential nomination on June 16, 2015. His announcement was met with bemusement and ridicule, but within nine months he had stunned the political establishment and forced his final opponent, Ted Cruz, into withdrawing from the race. In that time, he'd announced his intentions to build a great wall on the border with Mexico, ban Muslims from entering the United States, and to make America great again. How has a man best known for saying, you're fired, come so close to landing the biggest job in the Western world? I've been speaking to Professor Peter Trubovitz, director of the US Center at the London School of Economics. He's been trying to untangle the secrets of the rise of Donald Trump, and he started by discussing the moment at which he feared Trump might be a serious candidate. First, you know, my reaction was that he was just looking for airtime and in publicity, um, but uh, it became clear pretty early on that he was getting uh, some political traction. Um, but the reason that I think I took him seriously early was that I thought the Republican field was weak. So I never thought that Jeb Bush um, was going to get a lot of traction inside the party. He just had too much of a burden to carry uh, given uh, his brother's presidency and kind of the legacy within the Republican Party let alone uh, kind of the body politic uh, in general. Um, and Ted Cruz, I, I had felt, was too far to, um, to the right, and Marco Rubio too inexperienced. Um, there were some other possibilities that, you know, uh, people that could get traction. Um, and I will say that I always felt that the candidate that would be uh, strongest for the Republican Party was not Trump, but was was John Kasich. Um, I think you know he would have done very well with independent voters and even conservative Democrats, and would have posed a serious, serious challenge for um, uh, Hillary Clinton. The Republican Party has long valued experience and proven leadership in its presidential candidates, but involvement in Washington politics has become a smear in many of the recent primaries. Much of this has been down to the development of the Tea Party, which began in response to Barack Obama's election and inauguration in 2009. The group combines social and fiscal conservatism with an embedded distrust of authority and government. From small beginnings, it has become a key component of the Republican Party, an increasingly important factor in determining the GOP's direction. You can't understand, in a sense, Trump's rise without understanding the level of anger and resentment inside the Republican Party. You know, the rise of the Tea Party and its frustration with their own leadership, with kind of the Washington establishment, especially the Democratic Party, but not only, 
Uh, and that is one of the things that made Donald Trump, I think, so attractive to many inside the party is that he's simply viewed as untainted by the political, the Washington establishment and the political process. Um, of course, you know, the irony there is this is somebody who has worked the inside of the Republican Party and the inside in, in the Democratic Party from the inside for many years. But nevertheless, he's an outsider in the sense that he didn't hold elective office. He wasn't uh, part of the Washington establishment. Um, and, uh, you know, he kind of came up uh, uh, not uh, self-made by any means, but uh, had pursued an independent trajectory, independent from politics. But I think that so many of them were painted with that um, brush, and uh, and I think because of the Bush name, Jeb just couldn't disassociate himself uh, from that, even though he's never held uh, office in Washington, D.C. Trump's rise from novelty to viable candidate confounded the predictions of political commentators in the United States. His campaign was characterized by personal insults, attacks on minorities, endorsements by the KKK, huge rallies, and incredibly passionate support. The Republican field was thought to be one of the strongest ever assembled, but Trump eliminated them one by one. He was up against a large field, the vote uh, against him was divided, and so he was able to kind of consolidate um, support, you know, he went from that like, you know, 20 to 25 percent, then up to 35 percent, you know, nobody said he could get to 35 percent, then he got to 35 percent as some of these candidates fell to the wayside and then eventually got up to the 50 percent plus. Um, and I think, uh, you know, uh, it, it might have been a, a different story if there were, the field was narrower and there were more clearly defined options. Uh, that's a possibility. Um, but I think also part of the problem is that Republican, the Republican opponents were very slow to criticize Trump. Um, and uh, they didn't take the gloves off early enough. And so one of the things that you've seen Hillary Clinton do recently is go right at him. And that's a very smart move. Is to define him as opposed to letting him define everybody else. And that's, you know, oneself. And that's what happened in the Republican campaign. He came up with all these nicknames for everybody, and it was just very, they all labored underneath that. And um, uh, and so I think that, I think the problem is, is that everybody thought, the strategists in all these different Republican campaigns did not think the Trump candidacy had legs or that he was truly interested in becoming president, that he was more interested in kind of pushing the brand and the Trump brand. Um, and that was a miscalculation. Yeah, so it's obviously been said with hindsight, the benefit of hindsight, yeah. sorry, that candidates should have bandied together early, but it was impossible for them to know really when that would have been beneficial and whether going alone would, have, would really be beneficial to their candidate, whether they would have been taken down with Trump. Right. And to be fair, this was a very unorthodox candidate. I mean, you know, he said stuff in debates that, you know, a, a normal Republican candidate would have basically self-immolated, you know, I mean, kind of imploded on stage uh, to attack the Republican Party or to attack the Bush George W. Bush for essentially being soft on national security. I mean, that 
it's a showstopper, and and it it should have been a you what one would have thought it would be a showstopper in South Carolina, and it was only it only made him stronger, um, and um, and there were just many things like that. Um, uh, the position on um, on waterboarding, and you know, I mean, that none of those things really stuck. And I think part of it is because one of the things that makes him attractive to so many voters inside the Republican Party is that he is just willing to really mix it up and say the wrong thing, you know, in quotes, the wrong thing, and um, and they find that. Uh, somehow refreshing, appealing, um, and I think you know it also plays to some pretty base instincts inside the Republican Party. Trump has prospered in his role as the Freudian id of America's white working class, but wasn't initially welcomed by his own party. The sincerity of his conservative values was questioned by former presidential nominee Mitt Romney, while George W. Bush has refused to attend the upcoming party convention. The Never Trump campaign was launched by angry Republicans in a failed bid to prevent his victory, and Paul Ryan, the most prominent elected Republican, was initially unwilling to endorse him. However, after eight years in opposition, the GOP has slowly accepted Trump into the fold. Uh, I think it just shows the extent to which the party, members of the party, want to win no matter what, and I think feeling that they will uh, rightly or wrongly, be able to control Trump once he's in office. Um, that he won't be able to do whatever he wants because there'll be a Republican Congress. Presumably, if Trump won, that Republicans would hold the House and maybe even hold the Senate. Um, and so uh, that they would then be in a position uh, to, you know, constrain him, I think. You know, that may be wishful thinking, but I think that's how, how some have thought about it. I think others maybe are making a longer-term calculation, which is Trump will lose, but they would rather be remembered as supporting the Republican nominee than, like, you know, coming out for Hillary Clinton and, uh, with, you know, kind of damaging their political future. So that they take the long view that this one, they, they can lose this one, they can afford to lose this one. In fact, they might be better off if they did lose this one. Uh, or at least the country would be, and that, you know, they'll fight another day. The risk for them is that, let's say that Trump goes down, that he goes down really decisively. So there's a chance here that Hillary Clinton can cleave the Republican Party in a way that would, uh, you know, uh, ensure um, not only um, that the uh, Democrats win the Senate, but even conceivably the House, or at least, you know, close uh, shrink the margins so much that uh, that the Republican Party is put in a position where it has to kind of play ball more with with uh, with with Clinton, um, a Clinton presidency. Um, so you know, it's you know, you need to be careful here. I mean, the other thing is is for. This, this kind of calculation that, you know, we, we, let, we lose this one in the hopes of, like, being able to fight another day, is that you have to hope, they have to hope that Republican donors, the big donors, make that kind of calculation and pump money into local races. Now, that, there is some evidence of that, like with the Koch brothers focusing more on, like, congressional races. But some of the large donors, like um, 
uh, Sheldon Adelson uh, look like they're going to invest in in uh, in Trump. Um, so, you know, I I think you know um, you can be too clever by halves. Donald Trump is not the only outsider to take a run at the two major parties in American politics. Former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was expected to easily capture the Democratic nomination and fight to succeed Barack Obama. However, Vermont Senator and self-described socialist Bernie Sanders pushed her to the very end on the promise of overthrowing the status quo. His populist anti-establishment campaign drew some comparisons with Trump as the two-party system seemed to fracture. Yeah, I think that there's 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 something there. I mean, there's a couple compare. They're very different candidates. They have very different messages. Um, uh, Sanders being an economic populist, Trump. There's some populism. There's also a lot of nationalism with a kind of American first and and um, uh, and really playing, as you pointed out earlier, the identity uh, politics card in a, in a way that uh, is not true of Sanders. Some of the similarities are, yes, insurgencies from uh, outside. In a sense, what you're seeing unfold is kind of the uh, uh, extremes against the center right now in, in American politics, a very unusual uh, array. Now, the extremes are not aligned in any sense. They're very far apart. Uh, it's conceivable that some other candidate in another electoral cycle could bring those extremes together, but um, uh, but that's not going to happen. Uh, Sanders is not going to do that, and Trump is not going to do that, even though he talks about talks a good game that he thinks he can pick up Sanders voters. I think that's unlikely. There is one other thing about uh, about them is that they have both drawn disproportionately from white voters. You know, so there's something about kind of the uh, electoral demographic that in a sense is similar even though the ideological priors or predispositions of their voters are quite different. Donald Trump has relentlessly targeted white voters who feel that they have been left behind by globalization and multiculturalism. However, the 2016 electorate will be the most diverse in American history, with non-white voters making up 31% of it, according to the Pew Research Group. Unfortunately, the Republican nominee currently enjoys historic unpopularity with these groups. 77% of Hispanics and 94% of African Americans view Trump unfavorably. This means that his strategy in November will be built on the declining white vote and tempting disillusioned Democrats away from their party. His whole bid for the presidency depends on flipping a couple of pretty traditional democratic states, like a Michigan um, or an Illinois uh, or a Wisconsin. Um, and he's got to, in addition to that, um, you know, I mean, pick up an Ohio. So, um, you know, but the the idea is that he can, or the hope is that he can penetrate uh, the Democratic strongholds in those states because of uh, working class and middle class frustration with the state of the economy, with the rise of inequality, um, and with um, kind of uh, identity politics in the United States. Having campaigned on a platform of anti-immigration, small government, and white nationalism in the primary contests, 
there will be pressure on Donald Trump to moderate his views in a bid to broaden his appeal to non-Republicans. As the general election race heats up, commentators will continue to question the seriousness of Trump's campaign. What does a billionaire businessman and TV star really want with the Oval Office? Is he someone who has long-held conservative views and presidential ambitions, or someone who has worked on both sides without serious political convictions? Is he, as some fear, just making it up as he goes along? My sense is that Trump has held some views consistently for a pretty long time, that is going back into the mid-early 1990s. I mean, this is somebody who has had kind of, it seems, presidential ambitions for a while, at least since the late 90s. Um, and you can go back and look at interviews, some of his positions on foreign policy, for example, that you know, wealthy democracies like Germany and Japan should pick up a larger share of the tab for collective defense. That's a position that he's had, he's held for a long time. But other positions, such as his views about uh, Mexican-Americans and, uh, you know, kind of Hispanics and uh, immigration, um, Donald Trump has done a, almost a 180, not only since the late 1990s when he had a much more liberal view, but even since 2012 when he criticized Mitt Romney for being too harsh. And if you go back and you look at interviews that he did, like with Howard Stern in, uh, in uh, the late 90s, um, his position on many issues, whether it was abortion or women's rights, much more liberal than the, you know, kind of the median Republican voter. I'm not saying it's like, a, you know, a Bernie Sanders voter, but nevertheless, he was to the left of a lot of Republicans. So some of this is Donald Trump made a set of calculated decisions about what issues would play well uh, inside the Republican Party and viewed, in a sense, the party as ripe for a takeover. Um, and But some of this is, frankly, razzle-dazzle, as we would say in the United States, you know, where you just kind of make up the play. Uh, in football as you, you know, kind of on the spot and, uh, and actually even during the play itself. Um, so I think some of this is really improv um, and he's made, you know, from a kind of narrow, tactical, strategic standpoint, uh, kind of, you know, moving his candidacy forward. He's made some smart decisions and some, I think, that are, you know, just prove problematic as he gets to the general election. For this program, we will look at the upcoming general election race between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, and Professor Peter Trubowitz will discuss whether either of them can unite an increasingly divided country. For more information on Pod Academy, please visit our website at www.podacademy.org or follow us on Twitter at Pod Academy. Our programs are available online and via iTunes. Thanks for listening.